Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Title of the sermon this morning is, Told You. We sang about it the first song. You lived, you died, you said in three days you would rise. You did, you're alive. Told you. And that's what we're going to look at from Mark this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Uh, let's do our memory verse, and since there are no words on the screen, I'm going to have to have my cheat sheet uh, because I'm, I'm going to mess it up. I'm, I'm confident of that. I know the first word, though, is calling, so we can get started with that. All right. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would, wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever wants to, or whoever loses his life for the gospel, because of the gospel of what? Because of that's right. Because of me and the gospel will save it. I told you I was going to mess it up, but I was trying not to look. What's that last line? Let's look at that again. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Mark 8, 34, 35. It's a whole new verse next week. It's an easy verse, though. You'll see, trust me. Some of y'all are saying, Michael, this is an easy verse, too. You're just a moron. Yes, but that's beside the point. All right. Told you. Now, we sang about it, and, and, and it's it's. It's clear Jesus said, could have said, told you. Um, as a matter of fact, that's what the angel said, right? When, when the, the, the Marys and Salome got to the tomb, told you, didn't he tell you? It, it, but, but it's not just Jesus that at the end of this gospel can say, told you. Mark, at the end of his gospel, is saying, Told you. Now, what am I talking about? Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 16. And, and we're gonna, I'm going to have a long instruction this morning because we're going to talk about some uh, biblical manuscript stuff, translation issues, and that sort of thing. We're going to we'll talk a lot about that this morning because this is one of those places where you have to talk about it. But verses 1 through 8 are, are, mark, are, are Mark's mic drop moment. If he were preaching it, if he were teaching it, he would give this one through eight. He'd tell it, and then he would take his microphone, drop it, and walk away. Because he has just proven what he, had, what he said at the beginning of the gospel. He is saying in verses one through eight, told you. But if one through eight is the mic drop, we've got to deal with nine through 20. We have to discuss uh, what that is and, 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 and how we have it. Unless you have a probably 1970s version of the King James Bible, 
even a newer version of the King James Bible is going to have some sort of footnote here about verses 9 through 20. Uh, if you have CSB, NIV, ESV, RSV, any pretty much translation, um, RSV isn't a disease, by the way. It isn't just a disease. It's also revised standard version of the Bible. So, yeah. You, you, but if you're sick, I'm sorry. Um, you're going to have some sort of footnote, right? It's got brackets. It'll say something like what it says in the CSB. Some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. And then there's usually even, there are even further notes. All right, let's talk about that for a minute. The vast majority of scholars agree that Mark ended at verse 8 and that 9 through 20 were added later because verse 8 or verses 1 through 8 are such an abrupt ending. They just didn't like the ending. Like this, this can't be right. I mean, he ends with the women not doing what they were told, and yet we know for a fact that they did do what they were told. So they, they, the, the earliest readers of the gospel struggled with it, so they apparently helped it. Now, there's all, there are all sorts of uh, external evidences for the fact that 9 through 20 aren't Mark's writing, that they're somebody else's writing. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about first, is external evidence. Not, not the actual gospel itself, but what we know from outside the gospel. First of all, there are actually four known endings to the gospel of Mark. Ending at verse 8, adding verses 9 through 20, like your King James Bible has, there's a shorter ending that was known in some manuscripts, not 9 through 20. Uh, if you have a CSB, it might have that in there. Mine has that. It says other manuscripts include verse 9 through 20. Uh, some include this other passage between them. So you've got gos- uh, manuscripts that end in verse 8, manuscripts that have 9 through 20, uh, manuscripts that have what's called the shorter ending. 9 through 20 is called the longer ending. They were real original with their titles. And then you have a few manuscripts that have both. The shorter ending stuck in there between verse 8 and the longer ending. So you actually have Mark's gospel showing up in antiquity four different ways. Um, the, longer ex- the longer ending, 19 through 20, actually shows up pretty early in the late uh, 100s, the late 2nd century that second, that longer ending is in there. So it's, it is early, uh, it shows up very early, so it has early attestation. There's a, there are manuscripts attesting to its existence. In the 4th and 5th centuries, so we're talking about the 300s and the 400s, there were scholars who were translating, who were writing commentaries, who were preaching uh, from Mark, and they were writing down, and they wrote down that most of the manuscripts we have, that we are aware of, don't have that long ending. They knew of a few that did, but most of what they had in the 300s and 400s didn't have that. So they had a lot of manuscripts without that longer ending. We don't have as many today as they did. Most of them 
no longer exist. But we do have that testimony back then. The two earliest manuscripts that we have, and what are considered the most reliable, partly because they are the earliest, don't have that long ending, verses 9 through 20. And when scholars are trying to figure out, when you have a gospel or any part of scripture that, that has multiple options, one of the things they go for, one of the things that they, one of the assumptions that they make is if you have something that makes it easier to understand, that was probably added. Because nobody is going to add something that makes it harder to understand. And there aren't, they aren't going to remove something that was there that then makes it harder to understand. So it doesn't make logical sense that somebody along the way, that, that Mark wrote this longer ending, and then somebody in the first 50 to 75 years after he wrote it said, boy, that sure does explain things well. Take that out. Let's leave it with this odd, difficult ending. It's not what they do. And, and there were often times where, this is, this is known throughout history, where someone who was copying Scripture put over here in the margin a note about what they just copied, or multiple notes, and if you're not careful about offsetting those notes, somebody decides that note was actually part of Scripture, and then the next copyist, 100 years, 200 years later, includes that in what they were copying. They just started going along the line, and they copied that too and put it in there, and suddenly you've got something extra in there. Didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough that scholars are aware of it. That's why they look to the older manuscript. This one doesn't have it. This later one does. And sometimes if we're lucky, we can go back and, oh, here's the guy that put the note. This is when it happened. That's extremely rare, but it's enough that that's the way they do it. So, externally, we are pretty confident Mark didn't write 9, nine through 20. The internal evidence, so evidence just in the gospel itself, are things like the fact 9 through 20 is nothing like what Mark, like how Mark has written in the entire previous gospel. If I remember correctly, in those few verses, Mark, uh, or the, the writer uses four, 14, I was doing like 14, I don't know what I was doing with my numbers, my hands there. 14 words that he never uses in the rest of the gospel. And that's, that's odd. Again, scholars look at that and go, okay, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he would do that, but all the other evidence makes that highly unlikely. And if you read it, he sort of starts over, uh, or verse 9 sort of starts over. We've already been told it was early on the first day. We've already been told that Mary, Mary, and Salome went. And then verse 9 says, and early on the first day, Mary Magdalene, like, yeah, yeah, you said that eight verses ago. Uh, so it seems to be something that was copied from somewhere else. If they had copy and paste function, it looks like maybe that's what happened. Um, and it doesn't really continue the story as Mark began it. It's not helpful. 
uh, Mark begins chapter 16 with three women. Suddenly, verse 9 mentions one woman. Um, he, he talks about the, in, in 1 through 8 that the women are supposed to go tell the disciples, meet me in Galilee, and yet 9 through 20 never mentions meeting up in Galilee. So it doesn't really continue what Mark wrote in 1 through 8. It looks like somebody copy and, and pasted. They had some other information, so they just kind of tacked it on, glued it on to the end of this, which actually leads to the next point. Verses 9 through 20 are in, in phrases, nearly direct quotes of Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts. And most scholars agree Mark came first. Mark was used by Matthew and Luke when they wrote their Gospels. Matthew is just this this broader explanation of these cliffs notes that we talk about that, that Mark is. He, Matthew adds more detail. Luke adds more detail and other sources. He told us that. So it doesn't make sense that it, it, it's, it's actually impossible if Mark came first that he would have used phrases from Matthew, Luke, John, and especially Acts. So again, just that isn't evidence all by itself, because maybe, maybe those four writers, three writers actually, Matthew, Luke, and, and uh, John, used his phrases there. But when you add it all up together, um, the only thing in 19 and 9 through 20 that doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament is the drinking poison part. And even the snake handling, it never says that they intentionally went out and messed with snakes. Some of our Baptist brethren in Tennessee and Kentucky do, and they pay for it regularly when the snake bites them. Um, but you have that one place where Paul was bitten by a serpent, and he's like, oh, that stinks, and he picked up the serpent and threw it away, and it didn't bother him. That, that's the only close to parallel we have of, of handling serpents, and we have no parallel of drinking poison. Okay, so I, it is my opinion, educated though it is, it's my opinion that 9, nine through 20 aren't Mark. So this morning we're going to look at 1 through 8. But it still leads to a question here. If you read it, you're like, Mark, this is just, you've just, you just stopped. There's so much more, you, clearly, Matthew, Luke, John, there, there's so much more you could have written why did you end so abruptly? We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but let's, let's think about the question, did Mark maybe write more? Or did he intend to write more? I mean, it, it's possible that he wrote a longer ending. I mean, we can imagine, I don't believe, well, they did, they wrote on the backs of pages some, but not often. So you could imagine how he had this booklet of, of pages and and uh, the bottom of the page was the end of verse 8, and then he started a new page with whatever verse 9 was, and wrote, and in the, tran uh, the, the in transportation, that last page got lost, and so we're left with this abrupt ending. That is, that is possible, but it would have had to have been like the day he wrote it, or the week he wrote it, or extremely soon after he wrote it, because that last page as far as we know, made no historical impression. So it's, it's no good really to speculate 
that he wrote something and it's missing. It's possible that he got to the end of that page and it was time for his own martyrdom and uh, he, didn't, he didn't get to finish. But it, it, the, 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 the circulation of it, 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 it seems that it, it got out pretty well and, and he would have been able to spend some time with it just as we understand it, it didn't, the timing of it and his death as far as we can figure out when his death was. We, we don't know. Let me just put it that way. So, again, we're speculating. We're, we're speculating that he wrote more. I don't, I don't think he did. I think he ended it this way on purpose, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But even if he did write more, it doesn't matter. This is what God has preserved for us. There's, there's a lot that the, Bibli- uh, the, the biblical authors wrote that isn't Scripture, that isn't considered Scripture. Uh, in Qumran, they found 151st, a 151st psalm. They found another psalm. We haven't included that in Scripture because it wasn't included in the canon 2,600 years ago. So we don't consider that part of the Bible. Even though there's nothing wrong with it, it, it doesn't not fit but we don't consider it scripture. We know Paul wrote at least two other letters to the church in Corinth than what we have as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, one before 1st Corinthians, and I think there was one between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, so that what we really have is like 2nd and 4th Corinthians. But we don't know what those letters said. They're not a part of scripture. They haven't survived. If we randomly found them, it probably still wouldn't become part of scripture. Even if we could prove Paul wrote this, it would be great, and we would probably use it for information and for some understanding, but it wasn't what God preserved at the time. So we're okay saying that even if Mark wrote it and it got lost, God's in control of what we have. So, then lastly... The, this, this added ending we have, verses 9 through 20, I believe is actually evidence that Mark never had a longer ending. If, if there had been anything out there, even remotely, that somebody had gotten a hint about, there, there, would, have been, there would still be some evidence of it. The, the earliest church fathers would have been writing it down and preaching from it and quoting it, and, and they're not. Um, even, even the guys who, who had manuscripts that had the longer ending, very quickly in like the 200s, 300s, 400s, as, as the copyists, you know, they didn't have copy machines or printing presses, it was hand done. They were, even back then, 1,600 years ago, writing little notes off to the side. This section is debated we don't know if Mark wrote this. Even way back then, they weren't sure. So we're in good company. Not a big deal, all right? Now, can we learn things from that, scripture, that, that, that portion of Mark? Absolutely. And I, I would not say don't read it. Again, it is, it, it's almost directly quoting parts of Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts. So it's not saying anything except the poison and the snakes. It's not saying anything Scripture doesn't already say. But how we approach it and how, what we expect from it, I think, can be affected by what we know about it. That's why, I'm not preaching it this morning, 
But I'm also making the point that verse 8 is a good, abrupt, intentionally abrupt ending because it is Mark saying, told you. Now, I struggled with this all week. I, I, I came home, I thought I was going to be able to, with Thanksgiving and all that, I thought I was going to be able to finish my sermon at the beginning of the week, and I worked on it, and I read, and I'll normally read two or three, maybe four commentaries for a passage. I think I read like nine for this one, because I was really trying to figure out, what do we do? Okay, I agree, nine through 20 is not the ending, Is eight is the ending, so what in the world do we do with that ending? So I struggled. And I think it is Mark saying, told you. And, and here's the big idea this morning. The resurrection proves that Jesus was, and is, was who he and Mark said he was. That's what verses 1 through 8 are telling us. That's why it's so abruptly. He, it's, it is a mic drop. It is, it, is the, it is him saying, and he rose, and the, here are all the reasons why the resurrection's obvious, just from the tomb. I told you he's the son of God. And he walks off and knocks over a music stand. I will never get used to that being so close to him. He just, he, he's done. And he said, I got nothing else to say. I don't need to say anything else. Let's, let's, let's see why he could do that. Let's look at the passage and then talk about it. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. And Mark's done. Mark has finished his gospel. Because, told you. So, what do we see here in the passage? Some, some things that, that you know, you've been told years and years and years. First of all, we see who was going to the tomb. Women! Women were going to the tomb. And... Uh, don't send a woman to do a man's job. Now, don't say that as that's my opinion. That was their opinion. Because women could not testify in court. They had no truthful testimony. Yet, the first people to know that Jesus was, was alive, was not in the tomb, was risen, were women. They were the ones who were told to go and tell the disciples, your testimony is the testimony that will prove it. Now, typical men, when they got there, we got to go see it for ourselves. And they did. We don't know that from Mark, though. He doesn't tell us that. But women whose testimony did not count in the culture are the people that are going to see the tomb. 
But it's not just any women. It's not just women who were random. It doesn't say, you know, paid mourners were going to, or, or paid embalmers, paid, they didn't really embalm, but paid body preparers, funerary uh, rite uh, performers. It wasn't those people. It was three very specific people, uh, Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, and Salome, three of which were mentioned uh, in verse 40. Of chapter 15, there were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. And then in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. So you've got women who were at the cross, saw him die, three of them. Then you have two of the three who were watching when they saw him put in the tomb. So they knew what happened. They knew where they'd put him. They knew he was dead. They knew most of what went on. We'll talk about that in a little bit. They, they were unaware, apparently, of some things. But they, so they knew this is the right place. There's no questioning their knowledge. There's only questioning their testimony. And God chooses them to be the first. So that's who was going to the tomb. What were they doing going to the tomb this early on Sunday morning? Well, verses 1b, the second half of verse 1 and, and verse 2 tell us they, they bought spices. They probably bought those Friday night, uh, or, or rather uh, Saturday night. The Sabbath was over at sundown on Saturday. So probably Saturday night, the stores opened for a little while. They bought the spices, planning to go the next morning. Um, what were they doing with those spices? It says they were going to uh, anoint him. Um, maybe they were going to, to finish what Nicodemus started. Um, John tells us that Nicodemus had 75 pounds of, of spices and oils that he uh, treated Jesus' body with when they wrapped him up. Maybe, maybe, they didn't, maybe they saw that Nicodemus did that. Maybe they were running out of time because it was almost the Sabbath. So the women felt like they, it was men. They probably didn't do the best job. We've got to go and make sure it was done right. Maybe that was it. Maybe they didn't see that part. Maybe they saw them take the body in, but they didn't see that, they, that Nicodemus did that with the, the, the uh, anointing, the, the spices and all that. Uh, and like I said earlier, they, don't em, they didn't embalm. The, the goal wasn't to preserve. The, the goal was to hide the smell. I mean, that's really what it was for, just so it don't stink as bad or the stink is mixed with good. So you get like decay and potpourri. Mm. Bath and Body Works hadn't made a candle for that yet. Um, so maybe they just didn't know what Nicodemus had done, or maybe it was just simply they knew that Nicodemus had done it. They knew that, that it, everything was fine. They'd probably done a good job. They were just going to worship. They didn't get to do it. Mary Magdalene owed a lot to Jesus. I mean, she, I mean we all do, but it, it even says, uh, in, is it in one of the Gospels, or is it this one? Now I'm having, is it verse 9, the one that he had cast seven demons out of? Oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. The, yeah, the longer ending. Uh, that that so she 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 my goodness 
So maybe they were just going to worship. But regardless, they were taking, they spent this money, they were taking this stuff, and what they were doing, as worshipful as it might have been, as utilitarian as it might have been, either way, it was completely unnecessary. Because, uh, number three, what did they miss? As they're going, they, they hadn't thought through this. They're, they're on their way to the tomb, and, and one of them remem- remembers, oh, the stone. What are we going to do about the stone? Can't just walk in there and anoint him. They already put the stone in front of him. And, and they're probably, why did they have to put the stone in front of him so quick? They could have waited a little while. They could have rolled it on over today. They didn't have to do it last night or, or Friday night. They could have, oh my goodness, well, how are we going to get the stone rolled out of the way? They missed that he said he wasn't going to be there. They're worried about something they're not even going to have to confront. And, 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 and their concern was unnecessary. Even, even if they had expected the resurrection, maybe they could have gone to the tomb and thought, well, we've got to make sure he's alive and not there, so how are we going to do that with the stone in the way? But they, they, didn't, they weren't thinking that. They were, he's dead. We've got these spices. We've, we've got to uh, go finish this, or we need to worship him, and how are we going to get the stone rolled away? Some would say that disciples, uh, his, his, Jesus' followers, created this myth of the resurrection. Plenty, plenty of evidence, and I'm not going to get into it this morning, that, that that's just not going to happen. You don't die for a lie. Uh, you don't die for something you know is a lie. Too many, it just doesn't work. Here's one more bit of evidence. If, if, if the women were in on it at all, why were they worried about the stone? Why were they taking these spices? Because they had no clue about even the resurrection that, they told, that he told them about. They were going to see a dead body. They were absolutely convinced of that and didn't think anything else. They missed the message. So what did they see? What did they find when they got there? Verses 4 through 5, they, they, from a little distance, didn't take long to realize uh, stones already moved. That's the first thing they found. Then they look inside, and what they find is not Jesus. Uh, scripture says a young man. It was, it was an angel, uh, a messenger. Uh, that's the word that they, it's used there that described him as a young man. They, his message was uh, an angelic message. Angel just means messenger. And he gives them this information. And the first thing he says is, look, see for yourself. You expect him to be laid right here. Most tombs, what they had was a, a kind of an antechamber, a, a larger chamber at the front where you would put all the bones. The, the family would have everybody who's died and all their bones would be in there. And in a little further in uh, would be a, a shelf, maybe behind another door, 
um, or at least a hole, uh, a shelf where you put the most recent body to decay and, and spend some time until it was just bones, and you'd gather those bones and you'd put them with the rest of the family's bones. That was kind of what they did. Most of the doorways for these tombs would not have been, you know, suitable for me. They'd have been uh, about three feet by three feet. It was not huge, so you had to bend over. We see that in other gospels. They bent over and looked in the tomb, so they would have had to have crawled in and looked and seen, and what they find was emptiness. No bones, obviously, would have decayed that quickly. No stench, because it was a tomb that nobody had ever used before. They find an angel and nothing else. A little confused. A little confused about the stone being rolled away. Really confused about what they found because they were alarmed. Now, we use that word alarmed, and, and, and we may use it a little less forcefully than they did. They were terrified. This wasn't, oh my goodness. I wonder what happened. And we see more of that here in verse, uh, when we get to verse 8. Trembling and astonishment. They were beside themselves. And, and at the moment, just going in, it was, where is he? What have they done? Again, we see it from other gospels, other places. They, they ask the gardener, what have you done with him? Just show us and we'll take care of it, but what have you done? They are terrified and alarmed that their Savior's body, their Savior, their teacher's body. They don't know he's the Savior yet. They, he's the teacher, the, the man they believed could have been the Savior, but now he's dead. His body's gone. What are we? Oh, this is just getting worse and worse. We're not done with them. The angel's not done with them. That's why he's an angel, empty tomb, stone rolled away. And what are they told in verses 6 and 7? Well, verse 5 says they are alarmed, and verse 6 he says, don't be alarmed. It doesn't work. Um, not real surprised. Uh, I, I don't think it would have helped me either if he told me that. That's the first thing he says, don't be scared, don't be alarmed. And then he says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. All right. Mark is putting some wonderful details in here. Remember, it's, it's the women who, uh, all three of them saw the crucifixion, two of them saw where the tomb was, and then when they get to the tomb, that they know it's the right tomb, but I'm sure they're thinking a little, uh, maybe we're in the wrong spot. The messenger, the angel, the young man sitting on the uh, side of the uh, bench there, the, the shelf there, says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, the one who was crucified. All right, he knows, um, we're in the, yeah, um, we're getting all the details right. He's not here. So we've got multiple points of confirmation. They were in the right tomb. Because some people say in their grief, they just went to the wrong spot. They went to the wrong tomb. No, the dude that was there said, you're in the right spot. This, this, it, we didn't have time for the headstone. Good thing. But if there had been a headstone, it would have said Jesus of Nazareth right here. He's, but he's not. So you, you, you're, you're, you're right. Confirmation that you are in the right place. Now, go tell his disciples and Peter. There's a whole sermon right there. The disciples who ran away. Mark 
who we think is the dude who ran away naked in the, uh, in the garden when he, somebody grabbed onto his cloak and that was all he was wearing and then pulled it off of him. We, we, he, the disciples, the, the followers who weren't disciples, and Peter, you know, I'll, though everybody else falls away, I won't. You'll deny me three times. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Hadn't talked to Jesus since the denial. And the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. That's where I'm going. That's where they need to go. Not done with them. It's not over. Yes, they denied me. Yes, they ran away. Yes, they did all these things. They went to sleep when I was prayed. I, yep, I know all that stuff. They weren't to be found around the cross. I got it. I know. Go and tell them and Peter to meet me in Galilee, we've got some things to do. Mark is, is still recording here the ministry of Jesus, what the plans are, what he's going to be doing later. And how did they respond then? Well, we've already been told partly in verse 5 that they were alarmed. But then in verse 8, we're told really what that meant. They're alarmed enough anyway when they come to uh, the, the tomb. The stone's rolled away, the body's not there, and there's some dude sitting in the tomb in the dark. That got their attention. But then the message um, caused them to tremble, be astonished, be overwhelmed by that. And be afraid. More of that terror. This is not uncommon for Mark. Every time Jesus did something big in his gospel, Mark would record that the people who saw it were scared, terrified, astonished, amazed. Over and over. I actually had intended, but I, you know, I wouldn't have time had intended to, to print out something that, that talked about the some probably 15 to 20 different passages where Jesus said, and the people were, and Jesus did, and the disciples were, and the Jesus uh, just over and over. Go back through Mark sometime and read it. It's only 16 chapters. Read it, and, and read it looking for those moments where Jesus did something and how Mark describes the people. It's always something like this. Astonished, fearful, afraid, terrified, amazed, blown away. I didn't use that word, but anyway, you know what I'm talking about. This is an important proof of the resurrection as well. At this moment, they didn't go, oh yeah, yeah, that's right, he did tell us that he was rising from the grave. No, no, in the middle of their... The, 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 the pain that now has led to abject fear and then bewilderment, they weren't thinking rationally, and none of us would have either. More proof that Mark is just recording it the way it was. And the women were out of their minds, beside themselves, because of all that had transpired here in the last 30 seconds this probably took, a couple of minutes at the most. 
just more proof that Mark is telling us exactly what happened. No sugarcoat, no, no details to, to soften the blow. Just this is it, y'all. So what did they do with that information? Initially, I was going to title this, this sermon, Joyful Terror. And, and it was real clever. And y'all could probably see where I would have been going with it had I done it. My problem was, Mark records no joy here. If, if he had, it had been a great sermon title. Maybe if we do Matthew or Luke at some point. But not Mark. No, no, there's no joy. There's just, there's just terror. Because what they do is not go away rejoicing in his telling. They don't do what they were told at all in Mark's telling. Now, we know that they did. Mark is just recording, best we can tell, the first few moments or maybe even the, 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 the run to the disciples, wherever they were at the time, just, may, just recording that length of time. Maybe he's saying that they didn't tell anyone outside of the disciples. But the way he writes it here is that their gut response was fear and not saying a word. What a, we've got to get out of here. Let's go. And I envision sort of this Scooby-Doo thing where their, the feet are spinning, but they're not removing yet. And you get this, they take off. That is all they're thinking, getting out of Dodge. And Mark ends the gospel. Dude. He just stops the narrative. Now, if he's writing to the Romans the church in Rome, which we believe he is, they knew the rest of the story. They knew what happened after this. They knew that the women went and told the disciples. They, they knew all of that. They knew what Matthew and Luke and John recorded. They, they, if, if, so long as Peter shared that information with them, and, well, we know the story got back to the disciples, so we know at least that part he told them. They probably already had most of, P of Paul's letters. Mark was written in the late 60s, 65 to maybe early 70s, after the temple was destroyed. That was almost all of Paul's letters, except uh, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. All of his letters were written prior to 65 AD, as early as early 50s. Romans was written in the late 50s, the letter to the church in Rome, where we understand Mark was when he's writing this gospel. So they had, they had all the information about the risen Jesus. So, so leaving all that out at the end of his gospel didn't mean he wasn't sharing the information. It meant he had a point to make. And what was the point? Well, we don't know. Because he doesn't say what the point is. We're kind of left like we are with some of Paul's letters where we've, I told you when we went through, um, I don't remember which one it was, but any of them really, we're listening to one side of the conversation. It's like we're listening to a telephone call. 
And we hear what the person next to us is saying, but we don't hear what the other person is saying. So we have to base what's going on on the other side on what uh, the side we can hear says. Well, that's what we do with Paul's letters. What was going on in the church in Corinth? Well, we only know based on what he wrote. we got to do the same thing with Mark. We don't know why he wrote what he did. And we have to be careful that we're not speculating too much because then we're adding to Scripture and we don't want to do that. We have what he wrote. So, so what? So we do have to speculate a little because number eight, this is all you need. This is it. Go back with me to chapter 1 of Mark. If you don't want to turn there, you can just believe it when I read it. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he gives us his purpose right there. This is the beginning, first line, of the gospel, this condensed uh, recounting of, of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus Christ, you know, so he's got that last name, we know who he's talking about, Jesus Christ, not just some random Jesus, but that particular one, the Son of God. Now, he hadn't proven anything about the whole Son of God part. Now, he's going to do that throughout the gospel, though. Miracles, teachings, what he said, and then we get to the end. I think, not that it was the real ending, but the end of the narrative. The end of uh, where he's recounting to recount and let us know what happened is where we ended last week. With the centurion in verse 39 saying... Truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark begins his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God ends the, the, the narrative portion of Jesus' direct involvement. Notice the rest of Mark, end of chapter 15, chapter 16. Jesus is talked about, but he's not involved anymore. The ending of Jesus' active involvement is a statement by a Gentile, a Roman, someone who, as far as we know, hadn't heard all the teachings, hadn't kept up with any of that. A Gentile says, truly, surely, without a doubt, absolutely, no questions asked, this man was the Son of God. It's our bookends. Verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 15, verse 39. Everything in the middle proves that. Then some details, and this is how they buried him, but oh, but wait, Mark says. It's not enough that a Gentile said it. It's important. It's impressive. The Gentile knew this merely by the crucifixion, but I know that's not enough evidence. You need more evidence. You need to be able to give more evidence. Well, let me tell you what happened Sunday morning. Here's the evidence. Women went to the grave to, bear, to, to anoint a body, worried about a stone, 
and a messenger gets there and or is there and when they get there the messenger says you're looking for Jesus who was crucified he's not here he's risen from the grave he's gone to Galilee to meet the disciples go tell them mic drop that's all you need number eight Pat that's all you need Mark didn't think what happened it appears Mark didn't think that what happened next mattered for the gospel. Matthew talks about it, and we've got the whole, uh, we, we've got the Great Commission. I mean, there's a lot that matters for the church. But what, the, the part that matters for Mark, the Son of God, the Son of God, being in Galilee, didn't matter. The ladies telling the disciples, didn't matter. That didn't prove any further that Jesus was the Son of God. He has given an account for the truth of what he said at the beginning and what the, the, the centurion said at the end. Truly, this is the Son of God. That's why I think verse 8 is the ending. Because it's just like Mark to say, See? You don't need no details. I told you. you got all the details you need. You have all you need. Now, was he thinking? Maybe. Let's not put this in his mind, though. Let's just go with it from here today. You have all you need, but what will you do with it? You have options. This morning, you may need to believe it. You may need to place your faith in this Jesus that Scripture says rose from the dead. That Mark says, see, duh, he's not there. And if he's not there, he has to be somewhere. And where he is was Galilee, but that doesn't matter. All we need to know is that the tomb was empty. And there's no reason for it other than what the angel said, he's risen. Because he said he was going to rise over and over and over. I told you at the beginning of the gospel, he's Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The tomb's empty. What you going to do? Are you going to believe? Are you going to respond in faith? The centurion did it just from the cross, but Mark didn't leave that. He said, oh, by the way, not only that, but the tomb is empty. So everything else that Jesus said about himself, Son of God, one with the Father. All those things, if, if he had gone to the tomb and the women had gotten there and they had found somebody to help them roll the stone away and they had gone in and they had anointed that body, then we could say, well, I guess he was wrong about all the other stuff. And those were good parlor tricks, or maybe the Pharisees, the scribes were right. He was using demons to do all that stuff. But certainly he's not the Messiah, the Son of God. But they didn't find that. They found an empty tomb and a message of resurrection, which he had said. Therefore, if he said it and it happened, he's who he said he was. So what are you going to do with that? I pray if you've never believed it this morning, you will believe it. Maybe you need to share it. The, the, the women, Mary, Mary, and Salome, once they gathered themselves, gathered their wits about them, they went and told. They shared the gospel. 
Jesus is risen. They were obedient. Mark doesn't give the Great Commission, but Matthew does, and Luke gives one too. We have a responsibility to share the message, so will you share it? Or will you merely be astonished? Wow, that's amazing. And go on about life and you know, think about what you're going to get at Navrosky's and wonder if the Methodists are out yet or if the line's going to be long. It's going to be long at Navrosky's. But you're astonished, but it doesn't really change anything. Maybe, maybe you're afraid that, like the women, your life is about to change radically. Because if you follow Jesus, if you believe, if you trust him, your life changes radically. You know why? Because your life is now his. You are now taking up your cross, and you are intentionally losing your life so you can save it. And that causes uh, trembling and astonishment and great fear. Maybe you're bored with the story. The resurrection again. We talk about this at Easter. Why don't we have to talk about it now? It's Christmas. It's sort of a, I'm, I'm certain I'm not the first to come up with this, but it, 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 it's beautiful. We, we question in the coming weeks, so like Mark, before Christmas, we're going to get to the resurrection right before we start a Christmas series. That just, that doesn't make sense. That makes perfect sense. Etta talked about it a little bit at the beginning. We're living in this spiral, this, this Groundhog Day, if you're familiar with the movie with Bill Murray, where we celebrate Christmas. Yay! Jesus has come. And when we go a few months through the year and we celebrate Easter, yay! Jesus died and rose again. And now we wait, we expect, we anticipate that he's coming back. And from March, April-ish, to December, he doesn't. So, we celebrate that he came the first time. And then we go through the year, four months later, we celebrate the resurrection, and we anticipate, yay, he's coming. But he hasn't. So, we celebrate again his birth, and we just do this cycle over and over. And it is a wonderful cycle that reminds us that he's done all of these things. The promise of him coming, he fulfilled. The promise of him dying, he fulfilled. The promise of him resurrecting, he fulfilled. So therefore, one day, he will fulfill the promise of coming back. But until he does, we celebrate that he came the first time and he died and he rose and he saved me. And we celebrate and we celebrate and we celebrate and we will continue to celebrate. So what more wonderful way the week before we really start the Christmas celebration of his coming we celebrate the day he rose. You have all you need. So what will you do? Don't walk away from this mic drop moment. Mark is looking for a reaction. Mark is expecting a response. You've been told. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have been told. We thank you that you continue to tell us. We thank you that the message is new every time we come to it, that the resurrection is a point of joy anytime we preach it, anytime we read it, and it is 
applicable to any moment of our lives, just as the celebration of you coming in order to die and rise again. Jesus, we pray that we will never lose sight of all that. Lord, may we not walk away from this moment unchanged. And may we not stop here and let the glory, the terror, the amazement just be for us because we were given the commission, we were given the job to share, to tell. It's what Mark did when he wrote it down. It's what he had been doing and it's now what we must do as well. Lord, may we respond this morning in obedience and or faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. The very thing Jesus came to defeat, sin and death, is defeated. A gift, the gift that we we celebrate Christmas, gifts, this is the gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, or in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is where we get our salvation. That's why we talk about the birth and the resurrection. But that's what you must respond to. That's that's what you must believe in faith. So what is your next step this morning? You have one. We talked about some potential ones. You've got what you need. Now what is your step? Take up your cross. He calling the crowds, the crowd and, and his disciples. He told them, take up your cross. Leave your life. Follow him. Maybe you need to be baptized or the first obedience. Maybe you need to delete a life of obedience. Conform your life to him. You can share your decision with us this morning. If you're watching online, you can send us a message over Facebook or YouTube. You can connect with us on a connection card here. We're going to have a few moments where you can come down front and pray if that's what you need. During those moments, you might want to worship through giving. Scan the QR code that's on the screen or just prepare uh, to put something in the offering box in the back or in the foyer. That's worship as well, and it's needed to you know, keep the lights on and stuff. So we appreciate you worshiping that way. Now's your chance, though, to respond in whatever way God might be leading you as we stand and we sing of our thankfulness and gratitude for his salvation. Join us as we sing.